The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm this show's engineer, and your host is Mari. Mari's a local attorney and privacy consultant and is the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, Investigative Reports, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly Factor, Araldo, and a host of other shows. So to learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy Piracy. Okay. I got it right. You got it right. Oh, it's, evening, it is Mari. hard to say. Good evening. Pi- privacy piracy. Yep. Well, tonight we have a really different kind of show. We are going to be interviewing a film producer and director. But, you know, we're talking about a documentary about credit cards in our society. And people listening might be saying, well, gee, what does that to do with privacy? Well, we've defined privacy on this show many times as the ability and the right to control information about you and the right to control your life. And when credit takes over your entire life, you surely don't have much credit. You don't have much control. So we're going to be speaking with this uh, young and brilliant uh, director, producer named James D. Skurlock. He's, uh, he was born in Seattle, and he attended the prestigious Wharton School of Finance at the University of Pennsylvania. But he has no film training, any, at least any formal film training. It's on-the-job training. And in 2002, he moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career in filmmaking. His first film was Parents of the Year, and it's been featured in over 25 film festivals and won numerous awards. And now the film that we're going to be talking about that's in its post-production, it's already been in film festivals, and I was fortunate enough to see it, is called Maxed Out. It's a documentary on Americans in debt. And um, he also has another uh, film, Stumped, and it's his uh, his first feature film. So we're uh, going to, I wanted to just read to you something that I found about this, you know, a review about about this show, because I think uh, that, that'll give you a, a good idea of an introduction, if I could find it here. Oh, yeah, this is it. Okay, this is what it says. And, and, and it's true, because I, there were times when I was watching this show, you saw me, I was crying in some of them and laughing hysterically in others. This is what it says, a disturbing look at the state of debt in America, from the highest levels of government to the working class poor, maxed out elevates corporate power and greed to a whole different level. They say n- nothing causes more stress than money. You know, me doing divorces, a lot of the times it's over money and how you handle money. 
after the images of mothers who have lost their children to suicide over immense credit card debt trade-off, with the smiling faces of collectors, credit card companies, CEOs, and uh, you know uh, the real-life stories of all these people and the, the looks on their faces, Maxed Out is sort of a plastic super-sized me where every interviewee knows that it is out of control, yet they feel that it's hopeless and they feel impotent, unable to deal with anything. Lives are ruined, bankruptcy is declared, bills are passed. The trouble is that as the nation's individual and collective debt skyrockets, mega corporations and the Enronites of the world are bowed down to what Skurlock asks through his crystal lens is, what are we going to do? So we're going to find out from James what we are going to do. James, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. So you've been a uh, kind of a displaced, uh, now you're a, a real Californian, huh? Uh, yeah, I think so. I've been <laughs> here about five years, so um, I feel that way. Yeah. So, so why did you make this movie about credit card debt? How, how did this all start? Well, I've always been interested in finance, but, um, you know, when I got into film, I wanted to ask questions, you know, and tell stories, and, and the biggest question I had was why most of us can't get out of debt, you know, whether that's individually or whether as a country we can't get out of debt. And it's something that affects people who are rich or poor. It affects people who are liberal and conservative, you know, religious and agnostic. It just old and, you know, old and young, it's just affected everyone in our society. So I really wanted to to ask that question and see what exactly was going on. Yeah, you know, I had read recently that the average family has $9,300 worth of debt that they're carrying. And, you know, they're making those minimum payments if they can. And, you know, with, with interest rates rising, and it's it's a scary situation right now. It, it, you know, and then... Yeah, and that's that's just credit card debt. You yep. know, that doesn't include your mortgage and your car payments and, you yeah. know, and all sorts of other things. Or your share of the, the federal debt, you know, the national debt, or your share of the state debt. Right. Um, and sometimes uh, you have a share of city debt, you know, if you live in a, in a larger city, particularly. Um, so I think it's a very scary picture. I think what's, what's most frightening, however, and the reason I made the film was, you know, getting out of debt is the number one New Year's resolution now. It's, it's um, surpassed losing weight. <laughs> and um, there's a million books out there. There's there's a lot of dead ministries now. Uh, there's all kinds of radio programs and television programs telling you how to get out of, of debt. Um, but the more we see these programs, the more <laughs> in debt we seem to become. It just seems inevitable. Yeah. What was the most surprising thing that you learned making the film? The most surprising thing I learned was that your income has nothing to do with your credit score. And um, I found that very surprising because your credit score now determines how much credit you're granted. Um, it also determines what, you know, what interest rate uh, that credit is, is uh, given to you. And uh, increasingly, it, it determines how much you pay for your utilities and whether or not you get a job or an apartment or all these other things. So when I found out that your credit score doesn't take into account how much money you make, you know, I, I found that shocking. I always assumed that you got credit based on whether or not you could afford to pay it back. Right, right. And um, what I found is that income is, is really the one thing that they're not looking at. 
Right. They're looking at your credit report. And your credit report doesn't really have, you know, your salary or your payroll pay stub. It's got what credit cards you have, what your debt is, how you pay back, how fast you pay back, you know, how how many inquiries, how many, you know, credit cards you're applying for, all that kind of stuff. You're right. So I, I think you're right that a lot of people don't even realize that. Well, yeah, a lot of people. A lot of people assume, and, and historically they would be correct. They, they wouldn't be correct over the past twenty years or so. But you know, they assume that the bank is still out there rationing credit, right? And the bank is going to determine how much they can afford to borrow, um, because that's the role that the bank has traditionally served, at least since the uh, the Great Depression. Right. You know, the bank has been. Um, been the real regulator of credit in this country. And if you wanted credit, you had to go down there and prove that you had the means to pay it back. Right, right. And that is no longer true. That being said, the verbiage the banks use is still very much the same as it has been for, you know, for decades, which is, well, if you if you get the, the offer in the mail, it usually says something like, congratulations, you've earned this or you deserve it. Right. Or, you know, college students get these these mailers saying, you've graduated, you know, you've become an adult now. Right. And, and the message is, you you have earned this credit. Right. right. Um, and people believe it. And, and the scary thing is for college students, and boy, you sure showed this in the movie, but, you know, I know my own kids, you know, they were getting credit card pre-approved offers you know, when they were young, because I set up college accounts, and they were getting it at college. And, and my son now, who just finished his master's degree, you know, he's carrying some credit card debt, which is terrifying for me. And and my daughter's getting pre-approved offers at college. And you showed what happened with these two mothers. You want to tell uh, real briefly about what happened when these uh, two mothers who had children who had gotten into terrible debt in college? Because here we are in a, at the University of California, Irvine, and this could happen to anybody here. Yeah, you know, I didn't find that as shocking because when I, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, uh, as you said, and, you know, when I was a uh, was a freshman, I received the credit card offers. So I, you know, I, I knew that that was out there. Um, what I didn't expect was that a lot of these universities are being paid millions of dollars by the credit card companies for their students' information. Right. Um, you know, so the universities are actually partnering with these credit card companies, um, and in return, the, the universities are giving up what, you know, I always thought of as very private and very sacred information. You right. know, because I always thought a university had, had an implicit responsibility to protect its students. Kind of like the parent, and, yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, uh, you know, college tends to be a transition sure. from uh, from a world where you live with your parents and, and they're, you know, regulating your life into a world where you graduate and become an adult, and hopefully by then you've learned uh, to do it. And, um, and, 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 the they, and you know, st- parents as well as students really trust the school to protect them. I mean, you oh, know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. As You know, as I think they should. I think right. that um, I think that the university should have a a special place, um, and I think the university should fill that that sort of transitional role, and um, it does in a lot of ways, but they are just being offered so much money by the credit card companies that um, they're not turning it down, and um, they are essentially selling out 
their students. Yeah, and it was privacy. Yeah, it was tragic when you know in your documentary you you interviewed two mothers who eventually went to testify in Congress as to the terror that they experienced when their kids committed suicide because of the tremendous credit card debt that they just couldn't get out of and they couldn't deal with it. Yeah, in fact, I was just in Oklahoma City showing the uh, the film, and um, these two mothers didn't know each other. They lived very close by. One of them, uh, Jan, had a son who was a National Merit Scholar, very mm-hmm. smart young man, uh, went to the University of Texas at Dallas, and, um, you know, she noticed him getting depressed, but it just never occurred to her that her son could be tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. Right. It just didn't, it, it, it wasn't in her universe that that was possible, because um, this kid had a minimum wage job, and yet somehow he had 12 credit cards, he had a Neiman Marcus card, and, you know, she just didn't think that that was possible. So, um, you know, eventually he moved home and fessed up, but by then his dream of going to law school was pretty, you know, pretty much shot, and his parents had to decide whether to bail him out right, or whether to use their money to send his younger brother to college. And, uh, you know, they decided that it was only fair to spend that money uh, giving his brother the same opportunity that he had, and, and that's a decision that they've, they've had to live with, and, and, and it's been really yeah, guilt-ridden. another tragedy. Right, right. Um, the other woman who she ended up meeting um, later on had a daughter who didn't even make it past her first semester freshman year, and uh, she pointed out that, you know, this girl was behind on the first credit card, they gave her another one. She was behind on that, I think they gave her another one. Um and again, to this woman who was in her 50s, she could only remember being turned down when she and her husband both had good jobs for an American Express card. You know, they just didn't realize how the industry has changed. Right. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I mean, people didn't really use credit cards all the time. They used a lot of cash. They mm-hmm. used checks. And and now, I mean, even I, I use credit cards for everything. I get my gas, I get my groceries, I pay my tax bill with my credit right. cards. But, you know, I'm, I'm real careful. I pay them off every single month. And when I have clients come in to me and they have 25000 30000 50000 worth of credit card debt, and now the bankruptcy laws have changed, you know, they are just up to their ears in alligators. It's, uh, it's beyond what they can even handle anymore. So tell me, why do banks want us to be late? It looks like they do, and and they charge outrageous interest and late fees. And you know, for these credit cards, what what is it? What's going on here? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things going on, but I think the biggest by far is that their whole model of making profits has changed dramatically since a generation ago. You know, this whole notion of consumer banking being being highly profitable didn't even exist a generation ago. You know, banks used to borrow from, essentially borrow from us, from consumers, and then relend that money at a slightly higher rate to corporations, which produced things. So there wasn't a whole lot of money in consumer banking. You were basically making a spread on what you paid out on people's savings accounts and uh, passbook accounts and so on, CDs, and what you were able to uh, relend the money for. Right. So that whole model, with with the advent of the credit card and with the advent of 
of databases that were able to keep track of, you know, trillions of transactions very efficiently um, made consumer banking very, very attractive because now you could make very small loans to people in the form of credit card, charge them a very high rate of interest. Um, and uh, if you could loan money out at 8% or 9% to a corporation, you could loan it out at 24%, you know, to an individual. And, um, you know, we, we, we sort of gone one step further now where they're making their monies off of the fees that, that they charge. Great. So, um, you know, a lot of people are, are surfing their credit cards and finding the lowest right. rate, and, and, and people are, are wising up, you know, to the interest rate they're paying. <clears throat> but at the same time they're doing that, the banks have increased the fees that they charge and increased the numbers and the kinds of fees so that they're, you know, they're more than making up for... Um, for those lost profits with fees, and I think everybody I know has a you know has an outrageous fee story, right? Um, and and there's a reason that's where that's where the profits are made. You know, if you if you're late with a payment by an hour, or you know by a day or, or whatever, it costs the bank absolutely nothing. But they may charge you fifty dollars, right? And and they give you less and less time to pay. I used to have like with my um, you know my credit my visa i used to have 30 days now it's down to 20 days to pay right and, and it's very <laughs> yeah and then you know by the time you you get it it's like you have to pay it right away whereas before you know it'd mark my calendar and i still do that but it, it's hard of course now i've signed up for these little email uh notices we will tell you when your payment is due so you won't be late you know yeah and, then, <laughs> well, and, and you know, the film we show providian right which is now part of washington mutual um, and, and they were particularly insidious and, and actually uh, were caught shredding customers' checks or holding the checks so they could charge uh, late fees. But um, right. and there's, then a they, host of, yeah. <laughs> there's a whole host of insidious practices like changing the due date every month and right. you know, making a cutoff time. And uh, there's all kinds of traps that, that, that they've set for consumers. You know, I, I know that um, I think it was that the Federal Trade Commission did fine Providian, what, $400,000? For doing that, million. oh, four hundred million dollars. Good for them. But you know, a lot of the times, the Federal Trade Commission collects complaints. You know that, right? That they collect complaints when you you can you know complain to them, but they don't do um, a survey uh, that becomes public as to what those complaints were. And I have asked many, many times, you know, especially with regard to identity theft, hey, you know, why don't you do a public survey in which you tell how many complaints you got about certain banks and what types of complaints? <laughs> and, you know, yes, if they get enough, they will maybe file charges like they did against Providian, but they don't make it public, which helps you to decide on which companies you want to go with. Do you know what I mean? Right, and one of the reasons Providian got caught was because the uh, San Francisco newspaper uh, dug up some of the emails that had been going back and forth, and they were so egregious and so mean-spirited. I, I think they made the Enron phone calls when they were talking about, you know, burn, baby, burn, and yeah. taking money out of grandmother's purses. I, I think they made those those uh, comments seem, seem tame. You know, that's... Yeah, that's I, I remember this used to happen with me with my visa card. I would send it on time, I would mark the date, 
I even marked, I started doing, you know, the online banking so I would know exactly when my bank would transfer. And uh, one time I got a late fee and I called up, my bank is Bank of America, and I said, wait a minute, you know, I got a late fee from my visa. And so we got on the phone with the three-way and my bank said, wait a minute, we transferred it to you electronically on, you know, maybe the the third or something, and it wasn't due until the 10th, and why is it that she got a late fee? And they said, well, we didn't process it until we didn't process it till the tenth or something like that. Right. And and I said, wait a minute, you cannot charge me for your failure to to process it when it's sitting in your computer. But, but you know, there are probably a lot of other people who didn't complain, right? You know, who just figured it was too stressful. That's Call what, them and and, yeah. and take them take them to task. So there you go. That's that's one good reason not to use a check. I mean, it's it's really a better reason to do the pay by phone or the online banking from your bank because you have that you you can see exactly when it was transferred. Do you know what but I mean? Can, yeah, but can you can you think of any other business? And and by the way, I know that you were saying the FTC doesn't keep track, but the Better Business Bureau does, and the, the banking industry and credit card industry together generate the most consumer complaints of any business. Um, and I don't think you can find any other business where they antagonize their customers so much that their customers live in fear, you know, in constant dread of ever having to deal with them or of being manipulated or falling into a trap. I mean, there's no other business I deal with that I can think of where that's the relationship between the customer and, and the business. Right. The only other thing you can compare it to is, like, people being afraid of law enforcement. Do you know? Or the IRS. Yeah, yeah or the IRS. Exactly, exactly. Well, I want to introduce you again because if people are going by, they're probably saying, who is this wonderful person? So we're speaking with James Sherlock, uh, Skurlock, and, and James is a producer, director of a wonderful documentary that we're talking about called Maxed Out. It's about credit card in a society, and, and it's a documentary interviewing. It, it was really a fabulous a movie. I, I can't wait till it comes around here. What did you say, like in January of 2007? Uh, February. February of 2007. Right. Okay, so, you know, y- you revealed that some of the best customers for the, the industry are really broke and bankrupt. Right. And, and tell us a little bit about that. Well, there, there's a, a woman in the film named Elizabeth Warren who's written several books, and she's a... Um, professor at, at the Harvard uh, University Law School right now. Yeah, she did a great job. Yeah, she's terrific. And, you know, she's been consulting to the industry for some time, and, and she asked a, um, a vice president of MasterCard that question a while back and said, you know, why do you send all these credit card offers to people who've just declared bankruptcy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, we know two things about these people. One is they can't discharge for seven years. You know, and now with bankruptcy reform, it's, you know, it's, it's gotten even better right, for, the, for, them. for the credit card companies. Right. Um, and the second thing we know about them is they have a taste for credit. <laughs> and uh, she said, what do, you, what do you mean a taste for credit? And he said, well, we know that they are willing to make minimum monthly payments forever. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at going back to when we were talking about the credit score, if you look at what the credit score is composed of, it's basically how well you make minimum monthly payments. Right. You know, that is the bulk of your credit score. Right. And um, those are the kinds of customers who make them the most money because they're going to pay the fees. They're going to 
pay interest every month. And they're never going to really complain because they need more credit. Right. You know, and they know that if they push a little too hard, maybe the banks will turn it off. Right. So um, that that's why those people are such great customers, such profitable customers, I should say. Right. So when you get a, when, you know, when you get a, a letter or when you get a, a advertisement in the mail for a credit card that says you're a VIP or you're a preferred customer, you should remember what that really means. Right. right. <laughs> Let me ask you another question. When we were just talking, we were just talking a little bit about bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about bankruptcy reform and what you learned about that. Right. Well, you know, I learned. I learned a few things. I learned uh, that Congress doesn't really think that there's a problem on the supply side. In other words, Congress doesn't think that um, the way the industry has changed and this model that we have of credit scores and trillions of dollars of you know, easy credit flooding the marketplace, you know, they don't think that that's a problem. Uh, they think the problem is that a few people, uh, maybe 5%, um, somehow managed to to manipulate the system to their advantage and uh, dupe the, the bankruptcy judge and uh, get away with um, not paying some debts that they probably could have. Um, so, you know, now we have the Bankruptcy Reform Act as a solution to these incredibly huge, and I feel systemic, problems. Right. Um, rather than a serious look at regulating the industry um, or going back to regulating the industry the way it was regulated for decades. Right. And, you know, so many people that I've talked to who've had to file bankruptcy, a lot of them have had these horrible things happen to them. You know, the mm-hmm. disastrous cancer, right, or or accidents where they can't work or um you know, husband is over in in um, Iraq, right? Well, yeah. In fact, you, you had you had a story that you showed of this young couple. Oh, broke my heart. Where he, you know, was what was he in the National Guard? Want to tell that story a little bit? Sure. Yeah, um, Brandy and Will. They were a very young couple um, out of Tennessee, and Will was forced to uh, leave his job to go serve in Iraq um, several years ago, and. Um, his job didn't make up the difference between what he was paid as a National Guardsman. Right. So, uh, you know, suddenly they couldn't pay their bills. And he was, you know, thinking when he signed up for the National Guard, maybe, you know, worst-case scenario, I'll have to leave for six months. Right. He ended up gone for over two years. Oh. Um, and he's still going back. So here you've got, you know, a guy through no fault of his own, you know, is... is is left with a, a tiny income, a fraction of what he was making, to go serve his country. And his 19-year-old wife has to call and cajole and threaten the military to send him home for a week so he can declare bankruptcy, mm. so they can stop the harassment and, you know, try and move on with their lives. And, you know, I, I found that story really Heartbreaking. I know that it other was. other people and, and the majority of bankruptcies um, from every study I've seen are caused by either a, a job loss, a health care right. situation. Right. Um, a major or trauma. Right, right. A major yeah. trauma. But there was something particularly offensive about 
right. this man going to serve his country um, who was treated with absolutely no understanding and no compassion. Exactly. You know, having to be called back from military duty in, in very difficult circumstances. I don't know if any of us can imagine how difficult it is out there. Right. Not so he can come home and rest with his family and his newborn kid right. for a week, and he missed his son's birth, but so he could go to the court and file bankruptcy, you know, and humiliate himself and his family. And, uh, you know, that, that, was just, that was just terrible. And I know when they passed um, bankruptcy reform, they, they didn't allow any amendments in the House, and they, they overlooked um, cases like Will's. And there are a lot of them. There's a lot of National Guards men and women serving in Iraq. Right. And after Katrina hit, there was a movement to, you know, exempt those people from some of the bankruptcy reform, uh, bankruptcy reform provisions as well. Right. Um, and uh, that was uh, rejected also. So, well, we have seen in Congress that they they have not been consumer friendly, and we've seen obviously where where do they get their money? You know, who are the lobbyists? Right. The, the lobbyists are for the large financial industry. They are not for from people like you and I who are out there trying to speak about this, but we're, we're, our voice is lost because unless we can get it really, really out in the media, do you know what I mean? If somebody, if once your uh, documentary is really out there and people are talking about it, that might change their feelings about things, you know, when they have to deal with the media and it's just all over the place. But I don't think otherwise they're getting paid by lobbyists to vote the way that they vote, right? I mean, that's that's the way it is. Well, and not only that, but, but in the case of bankruptcy reform, the legislation was literally written by the industry. Right. And and there's a lot of bankruptcy judges now who are up in arms. Frank Monroe in Austin, Texas, has made the most noise. And, and this is a guy that was a very private person and never sought out the media, um, but just became so irate um, on the bench by how poorly written and how dubious uh, and observed this piece of legislation is um, that he launched into a tirade, and it got picked up by all the major media, <laughs> and he became this kind of, you know, accidental uh, celebrity because of it. But, um, you know, when you have the financial industry literally writing the rules, exactly, um, then I think something is wrong. Well, that's what we've seen with the security breach laws, too. I mean, that's who's writing it. They are going in there, and they're writing the law, and then they're giving it to the to the, uh, you know, the legislators to carry. I mean, we've seen that a lot. Now, I, I have to tell you, on the other side, on the consumer side, we've tried to help write some laws and, and give them to uh, legislators who will carry it as well. So, I mean, that's kind of par for the course. They, they want somebody to write it for them because they don't know what to write. They're not out there in the trenches. You right. know, we're out in the trenches, so we have to be the ones to write the legislation and, and push it. But unfortunately... Uh, I've done that. I've been on the side where we're trying to write. And because we are not also giving money, you know, we're not getting the kind of attention that the other side is getting. Right. Well, what you're seeing is, is, is that you're going to have to pay for privacy. Right. You know, um, and it just becomes another uh, commodity. And if you're willing to pay enough, I suppose you could probably have some privacy. But I just received my um, privacy policy from a credit card the other day. Yeah. And there was a... Um, section called their opt-out right. you know, policy, which I became kind of excited about, and I thought, well, you know, I, I guess I can opt out and then protect my privacy after all. And it basically said that they share their share my information with everyone, and mm-hmm. yes, I can call them opt-out, but if I do call them an opt-out, they can still share the information. Right. So Be- I wasn't quite sure what, what <clears throat> I was getting out of the bargain. 
Right. Well, a lot of the privacy policies are really disclosures, but in the state of California, um, a company cannot share your information with a third-party non-affiliate without your prior permission. That's California law only. Um, But as far as affiliates, which they have millions of affiliates, right? I mean, you could have 10 pages of affiliate. We just, you know, uh, went through escrow on on a house and uh, they said, we can, you know, we will share with our affiliates. You you know, you don't have the right to even opt out of the affiliates. And I said, wait a minute, there's four pages here that you're going to share my social security number and all the information that I put on my loan application with these three pages of point, you know, 10 point uh, type of all these people, I was I was really upset. But you know what? That's the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. That was the Financial Modernization Act of 1999. And so they can do it. So, well, not only that, but it really, you know, really the way the credit scoring and the credit reporting system is worked up, um, you really only need to share the information once. And it it becomes a permanent record that's accessible to pretty much everyone. Right. Um, and this is something that a lot of people, and I didn't understand when I was making the film. You know, I didn't, I didn't start out one with the idea of making a film about the financial industry's um, need for regulation or about their their outrageous behavior. Pred- predatory you know? behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Far, <laughs> actually, uh, far from it. I I started out wanting to make a, a funny film about how. Uh, irresponsible people behave and how ridiculous our consumer culture is and how we have all these $30,000 millionaires running around and, you know, college students driving BMWs and all this kind of stuff. But that, you know, that after, mm-hmm. after I really got into it, you know, that, that, um, that changed really was quick. not the story. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, that I found that, re- that shocked me, also going back to your first question, was, when you look at the way mortgages are sold or refinancings, and it's a huge, 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 huge market because of the way information is shared, like you were saying, you know, the four pages. Right. Those companies have perfect information on you. You know, all they have to do really is, is, is share it with, with a credit bureau or share it with one other person, and pretty soon all that information is going to be, be, be um, gathered um, by a credit bureau or by all three of them into, into a single you know, file. Profile, right. And, and then shared happens, with other data brokers, too. And then shared with others. But, yeah. you know, once that happens, right. they know your financial picture. Um, you know, they have a perfect snapshot of, um, of you and when you need to refire, you know, what, what your financial needs are. And uh, we saw a lot of people who were getting manipulated and, and getting uh, this bait and switch, you know, and they, they would get to the point where, they really needed the money finally. You know, they thought they were being responsible. They thought they were leaving plenty of time, but they, they kept getting delayed, and, and, and the broker or the institution kept telling them to wait. And they'd finally get to that point where they really needed to get the deal done. And right. at that moment, the rate would go up or there'd be more fees. You know, the deal would change some other way, and they would sign anyway because they were desperate. Right. And what they didn't realize is those companies knew everything about them. Right. You know, those companies were all sharing their information. And sometimes the information is wrong because when they keep, you know, when they input this information, a lot of times we as the the consumer don't get to see it. And so it could be put in wrong or there's merged files. You oh, know, yeah. You know, my, my mother um, yeah. called me up a couple of weeks ago and she, she saw the film and um, 
I hope not because of the film, but she, she ended up signing up for one of these identity theft programs with her bank. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And um, she called me up furious because what she learned was the credit bureaus have conflated her identity with my father's second wife. Right. That's so, very common. Yeah. In, in the eyes of the credit bureaus, my mother and my father's second wife are the same person. Right. You know, and you can imagine. And if one of them is a, is a you know smart shopper and she pays her bills and one of them isn't, that's a real problem. Oh, that's a real problem. But talk about identity theft. Right, I mean, right. You know, stealing my mother's identity and replacing it with, with my father's second wife is just... Yeah, um, it's emotionally blow, a mind blower. Besides oh, being financially a, yeah, exactly, exactly. And she said, "She said, what should I do?" And I said, "Well, you should just pray that Dad's second wife doesn't declare bankruptcy or rob a <laughs> liquor store or something, because I don't think there's anything you probably can do." About well, it. yeah, she can. She can actually write to the credit bureau's return receipt requested and and clarify right away that they've merged the file. Well, but you know, but she, we, she can. But we have we have a woman in the film, Doris uh, Goldman, right? Um, who was was written down as deceased when her daughter died. The, the bank oh, yes, screwed I s- up and yes. said that she was deceased rather than her daughter. Right. And I don't think Doris still has convinced the credit bureaus that she's alive. And they, they depositioned her with like eight attorneys <laughs> a yeah. year ago. And, um, you know, she's just living in this absurd um, netherworld where she, where the credit bureaus are insisting that she is deceased. Right. I mean, they're they're right there in the room with her deposing her, yeah. Yeah, asking her, um, I, I can't imagine the questions they ask her. But plus that, besides being so absurd and ridiculous, just imagine she lost her daughter, and her daughter is deceased, and then she has to keep reliving this issue. Well, yeah, and, and that's what she said was the hardest. And yeah. She, you know, this, she sat through two days of depositions, and uh, the one question I know they did keep asking her was, is your daughter really dead? Oh, gosh. You know, and, uh. and this is a, a mother of a young woman who, who, who died in a rather tragic circumstances and, and um, you know, tragic just by definition being a young woman. And her mother has to sit there and have eight attorneys. Right. You know, remind her of that fact over and over and over and over again. And for what? To yeah. prove that she's... That this woman who's living and breathing in front of them right. is is, is uh, somehow a zombie or something. It, yeah, did she testify in Congress too about about the credit bureaus and what's going on with the with the crazy databases? Has she testified at all? Or you know, no? Doris Doris is not, and I think Doris is is almost a poster child for for right. most of us because Doris doesn't want to believe that anything is really wrong. Doris doesn't want to believe that these that these institutions um, could be acting in such a malevolent manner. Right. You know, and I agree with her on the one hand. I, I don't think that they're trying to be malevolent. I think they're just protecting the system they've built. Right. Um, but um, there's something very evil about what they're what they're doing. Well, I think it's their cavalier attitude and the attitude they're not they're not looking at these people as people. They're looking at them as credit scores. They're they're you know, we've lost that that sensitivity human sensitivity about being a human. Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah, that's and, what happens. Well, and we interviewed an, an attorney named David Schwack. Who's, yeah, David's who's, um, been on our show. And yeah, he, and David's one of the more prominent attorneys in sure. your area. Right. And, uh, you know, I brought up Doris's case thinking that David would, would, at least it would raise an eyebrow or something, and David said, oh, yeah, we get those all the time. Yes. And um, <laughs> I thought, 
geez, you get people who walk in here all the time saying, I need an attorney to prove that I'm I'm alive. alive. (laughs) And David said, yes, we do. And he said, in fact, you know, I've depositioned the credit bureaus many times. And the last deposition, we asked them how many files contained errors. And uh, they said, oh, probably 90%. Right. And he said, well, of those, how many do you think are serious enough errors to result in a denial of credit or some other unpleasant, you know, denial of a job, denial of utilities, right. denial of an apartment, something right. like that. And he, or a house, uh-huh. And uh, the guy said, oh, probably half or so. Um, so I don't, I don't know if you could find another business with a 90% error rate. And they get away with it. And and the, the scary part about that, James, is that there are laws, at least, that give us the right to correct, whereas... If if she's dead, you know, if Doris is dead and she's in the databases like ChoicePoint, LexisNexis, and those other data brokers that aren't credit reports, all right, then she's in there. She has no right to correct. That, right. You know, we don't have those rights. That's that's basically what Congress is talking about right now is the data brokers, and, sh- and they've been fighting oversight because the data brokers that are un not subject to the Credit Reporting Act, um, are really ruining our lives. You know, we've talked on this show about my one client who um, found out that his identity was mixed up with that of a murderer. And and then recently, and I'm still dealing with this case, and this is a case where my poor client has been out out of work for since basically hasn't been able to work in his field since 1991 because his uh, identity was mixed up with that of, of a felon in New York, and he lives in Florida. So those are those are really scary things. But I want to get back to, I don't want people to think that your your movie is all depressing. What I loved about your movie is you, you took me from the highs to the lows, from laughing hysterically and, and kind of tongue-in-cheek laughing to just really, you know, being very sad. I think one of the funny things was you... Talk about where how First USA hired those two teenagers. That was right. that was talk about that. That was crazy. Well, yeah, um, Chris and Luke. Uh, they were two uh, high school students from New Jersey, and uh, they had this brilliant idea because they didn't want to um, graduate from college with a mortgage on their heads, which is what a lot of students are doing now, just to you know get through school with student loans. So they put themselves up for rent as human billboards. Right. And they worked for, they had summer jobs with a PR firm in New York. Um, So they managed to get this story out on the wire or something. And lo and behold, First USA heard about it and said, yeah, we'd love to purchase you guys as human billboards for, you know, for our company. Right. And uh, there were some discussions, I think, and Chris and Luke say that they made it very clear that they didn't want to be credit card billboards, they wanted to be spokesmen for financial responsibility. That was going to be the angle. Right. Um, And at the end of the day, First USA got a huge amount of publicity. Um, They were on the Today Show, they were in Forbes, Wall Street Journal, they were in Yahoo, they were everywhere. Um, But they didn't really show much interest in talking about financial responsibility. So um, that relationship ended after their first year. And... um, in fact, I think Luke just graduated from uh, USC, and uh, Chris dropped out of Pepperdine. Oh. But uh, the thing that I love about that story is that um, First USA paid their college tuition late. Um, oh. In fact, oh. in fact they, um, 
they're they're worried up until the end that, that they're going to be kicked out because First USA just couldn't seem to uh, write the check for their their tuition as promised. So did they charge them a late fee and in interest? Yeah, that's what I wanted to know, but it's, apparently they didn't. Um, but I, I just thought it was uh, how ironic. Too right? ironic. Yeah. yeah that the credit card company couldn't couldn't get its payment in on time. We're speaking with James Skurlock, who is a film producer and director of a of a great movie that'll be coming out soon. It's a documentary called Maxed Out. It's about our society and credit cards. I really thought it, what was interesting, I, I loved the way you had the black and white and then the color, and then in the beginning was really funny with the realtor in the car. You know, we live in Orange County where there's a lot of three, five million dollar homes. You know, you drive by, right. uh, you know, uh, along the coast and you see these houses and you wonder who can live here, you know? Right. Talk a little bit about that. That was that was really funny how you had her. I mean, it just it was such a typical realtor. Yeah, well, one, you know, one of the easiest forms of credit now is uh, mortgage mortgages. And I kind of knew that because one of my best friends is a mortgage broker in Los Angeles, which is a real hot market also. And um, he had We'd stayed up one night, and he had told me about um, what they call liars' loans in the industry, which I think are called stated income loans by right. the banks. Right. What that means is that you can essentially just tell them that you make a certain amount of money, and, and they won't check up on it. You know, so as long as you have a certain credit score, um, you can get the loan without showing any proof of income. Right. You, you know, don't so have to show your, you know, your uh, tax return. Right. Exactly. So what's been happening is that obviously people have been just making up whatever figure they need to to get the mortgage. Right. Um, with the assumption that home prices will continue to go up 10 20% a year, they'll be able to cash out their equity and make their payments, and, you know, become millionaires or, or whatever, or just have a home to right. live in. So um, I decided to go to Las Vegas, um, which was at that time, and I think may still be the hottest real estate market in the country. It had just gone. I think it's kind of going down a little bit now. Is it? Yeah, yeah. But well, it's at that a time, it, the, yeah. the previous year, prices had gone up 45%. Right. So um, we called up the, this woman who was one of the hottest realtors in, in Las Vegas who specialized in selling very expensive lots and in, in gated communities. Right. And um, now very expensive homes, spec homes in those gated communities. And, um, you know, we drove around with her, and she took us on a tour of a $6 million spec house, um, which to me was just inconceivable. And, you know, in the middle of the desert, you can build a $6 million <laughs> right. house on spec. And, um, you know, it was just these huge boxes. Yeah. Elevators. Um, elevator. And, and, and they, were, they were so big that they had to build two of everything. You know, right. it was the only and, way you could take up all that space. Right, two and kitchens. wine cellars. Yeah, wine cellars, <laughs> you know, movie rooms, everything. But you had to literally build two kitchens, two utility rooms. Right. You know, two, you know you, it, it was a lot of work to think of how to fill up all that space. Right. And um, towards the end of the shoot, Beth took us to the house she was building. Um, and she had just, she had a track house. Track that she had just sold for almost a million dollars, which even she herself couldn't believe. She just thought it was hysterical. <laughs> and um, so she was building a 10,000-square-foot house in one of these gated communities for herself. And um, as we wound up filming, she said, you know, um, I got this great loan called uh, uh, Loan to Value. And what that means is that the bank was willing to appraise the house after it was built. And I said, how is that possible? You know, How do you appraise something? Right. Right. After it's built, when it hasn't been built. And um, she said, well, you know, I don't, I don't know. But it's a great way, it's a very creative way to keep people building expensive homes because, 
you know, you can say, well, a year from now, this mm-hmm. house will be worth 40% more than it would be this year, you know, and you can get all kinds of money from the bank. Because there's more nod. equity. Yeah, there's more um, equity. Because you've just created equity out of thin air. Right. And um, <laughs> the final thing she told us was, um, you know, if interest rates go up by next year when the house is supposed to be built, I may not be able to afford it anymore. Right. Right. And, um, you know, my jaw just kind of dropped out, and uh, I realized that she didn't really see her house as a home. You know, it's really an investment, and there's a lot of people out there now speculating in homes because credit is so easy to come by now. Right. Um, and uh, in the process, they're driving prices up, and they're also creating a lot of speculators like, like her and a lot of her customers. In fact, I just read that 40% of home sales now are second homes, so... Right. And and uh, that is, you see all of these real estate seminars, and we've gone to them ourselves, you know, because the people who are, my clients who have a lot of money are ones who have a lot of real, real property, you know, mm-hmm. and they're renting it out. So there is still that issue, but I think, you know, it's a little bit scary in some places. Like, you know, California, it, it's still great. You know, we're still in an area where people want to live, but I think you're, you're getting the... Uh, you're going to get a lot of foreclosures, I think, what's going to happen. The interest rates are going to go up, and then people who have these variable rates are going to be in big trouble, big trouble. One of the other things that I thought was funny but actually disgusting was those two entrepreneur guys who were the the collection guys. I mean, they were Bob and Chris, I think. Right. Tell a little bit about that. That was that was another funny part. Just I was shocked that they were <laughs> so uh, you know open and upfront about what what you know vultures they are. <laughs> well, yeah, and I should tell you, I, I I really feel very grateful to Bob and Chris. They're the two debt collectors out of Minneapolis that we filmed because I was told over and over again that um, I would never be able to film debt collectors at work, and um, lo and behold. And Bob came around and said, we'd love for you to film us because we've got this whole new consumer-friendly model of debt collecting. We're not like the old guys, the, the Billy Goat Gruffs is what they called them. You know, we're the new model. We're, we work with people. And we think that having some publicity for our company will really help us out a lot. And, um, right. You know, please come and film us. So we did. And, um, you know, what we found out is that the new model isn't quite as new as, as they probably would like to believe you know you still collect money from people by threatening them and um what's really changed is all the information now that's at at the the fingertips of these debt collectors you know they have programs called skip trace right and they're sitting there in the you had them in the documentary sitting there in front of a computer and right (laughs) right right and they're saying chris is going you know what you can call the person but it's really much more effective to call the neighbor you know, or to call a family yes. member. Yes. And these programs show you, you, know, you bring up someone's name and social security number, and it shows you their neighbors, their neighbors' contact information, and some, sometimes relatives and relatives. You know, so, you know, it's, it's more effective to call the neighbor relative because it's more embarrassing. Right. You know, and you can really go after someone. The first thing these collection agencies do when they call you, you know, they have automated programs. So the first thing the program does is it brings up a copy of your credit report. And the reason they do that is, is, one, so they can have some familiarity with you and, and they can sort of intimidate you. You know, you get this call from an anonymous person, Mr. Johnson or something, you know, the very foreboding tone of voice. He's probably a college student, you know, right. on wait tables or something. Um, but the very serious demeanor and calls you and says, I see this and this and this and this, and suddenly you're going, my God, this person knows everything about me. 
Right. And it's very intimidating. But the other thing they're looking for are any credit cards that have open balances. You know, and they'll say straight off, why don't you just use this other credit card you have to pay off this debt? Right, right. And, um, the, you know, the amount of information at their hands is is astonishing. And you know what's really scary with these with these collection companies is they can buy something years later and people believe they you know that they have to pay it even if it's 10 or 15 years old and they don't. Well, one of the things I realized about their business that I didn't really understand before is yeah, they're in the debt, you know, debt collection business, but they're also in the debt extension business. Yes. In, in, in other words, a lot of people don't realize this, and I think it's what you're getting at, but the, the limitations on the debt um, is seven years. But if you can get someone to make a payment... Right. They renew the whole thing. Five yeah. cents, it's renewed as of that, that payment. So, you know, companies hire guys like Chris and Bob um, to collect debts, but they're also hiring them because if those guys can get someone to make a payment, you know, if the debt is six years and 364 days old... Right. If they can get if they can tell a person, look, just give us five dollars, give us something to show that you're a good right. human being and right. a good soul, and you're not, you know, you're not a this evil, irresponsible person. They've reset the clock on that debt. And, yes. And debt is bought and sold in the market now every day. Exactly. It's a huge market for debt, and it's packaged. So, you know, you may you may just get five dollars or something on that debt, but if you reset it for another seven years. Exactly. You've increased the value of that debt tremendously, and you can then go resell it as performing debt. Um, so there's this whole new business where, where you're literally just extending the statute of limitations on an old debt and just keeping that debt alive as long as possible. Right, right. Oh, it, it, yeah, it's terrifying because people have no idea that, you know, I think that there should be a law that they should be told this, that the debt collectors should have to tell them what their rights are, but they don't know, you know, and then they can go to the Federal Trade Commission and they can pull off some of the the help sheets. But most people are not really financially savvy. I mean, that's what's great about your your documentary. Tell me from from what they what. You know, since you've been showing this, what, what's been the audience response? Is it like me? I mean, I thought it was great, but what kind of response have you gotten? Have people gotten mad or what? Well, I mean, it, it hasn't been like you in that, you know, most people aren't as educated as you are. Um, a lot of people are shocked. Right. Uh, we were just showing it in Seattle, and someone asked me um, how many of the people in it were actors and how many were real people. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they're all real. It's a documentary. Right. And he just, he just, was astonished, and uh, you know, there, there's a lot of there's just a lot of astonishment. The the other thing that tends to happen is, you know, after the film and a festival, you'll do a Q and A, and um, almost everyone has been staying, um, which hasn't been my experience with other films, and it's also been more of a confessional atmosphere than a typical, you know, how much did your film cost to make, or you know, where did the idea come from? You know, sort of filmmaker questions. It's been a lot of let me tell you how I got out of debt, or let me tell you what happened to me. You know, right. Every, everyone has at least one horror story um, with debt. It's just infected us all. It was almost like a, an AA meeting at the end, huh? <laughs> you no, know, it was. And it's funny you say that, because we, we interviewed a guy from Debtors Anonymous, and, and it was a nightmare, um, because they, Debtors Anonymous must be ten times as secretive as Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, they're very, very, very protective of their privacy. And, um, you know, we couldn't shoot him directly. I mean, he had to change his voice and all this other stuff. Um, but in Seattle, uh, this woman raised her hand in the Q&A and said, 
um, why don't you have anything about Debtors Anonymous in there? <laughs> and I thought, wow, you just blew your cover. That's amazing. Um, you know, because the organization is so secretive. Right. Um, but I think a lot of people are just very frustrated, very stressed out, very angry, and they're just tired. Like, you know, they're tired of living in fear. They're tired of, you know, arranging like you, like you were sort of alluding to earlier, their entire lives around making sure they aren't charged a late fee or making sure they don't fall into some sort of trap. Right. And, you know, on TV we see this is the American dream. You've got to have the best car, the best clothes, go to the best places. This is this is the American dream. And you can live the American dream. All you need is a bunch of credit cards. And then there's this, you know, facade that we're living, right? Well, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing in our in, in our society seems to cost anything anymore. It's amazing um, that people are getting into debt because the the only billboards and TV advertisements and direct mailers I get say zero percent this or save or you know right. nothing down or no payments till sometime way in the future. Um, so nothing seems to cost anything anymore. Right. Well, Lloyd's giving me the sign that we've got about two minutes here, so I want to um, give your web page and um, maybe one last thing you want to tell us. So, would you give your website and? Sure. You... The website is um, www.maxedoutmovie.com. Uh huh. That's maxedoutmovie.com, and that has all the reviews and uh, some other information on it, which um, uh, I think you'll find interesting. It was. Um, Simon & Schuster is also publishing the book, Maxed Out, which I wrote about the experience making the film with all of the stories that we couldn't put in the film and a lot more facts and, and a lot more information. And that'll be coming out simultaneously in February 07. Oh, terrific. Well, we're going to have yeah. to get that book, too, and get you back on. Yeah, I'd love to come back on when it comes out. Sure. Well, sure we... there'll be, be plenty more to talk about by then. Right. So what we're going to be doing is asking people to watch this and to complain to their, their uh, legislators and to become more savvy about this stuff. So we have to go now, but we're going to have you back. We've been speaking with James Skurlock, who is a producer and director of Maxed Out. Thanks, you. Thanks so much, James. All right. Thank you. All right, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org, and we've been talking with James Skurlock, director of Maxed Out. To learn more about our previous guests, listen to our terrific interviews, and also download our podcast, go to KUCI.org slash privacypiracy, and meet us here every week at 5 o'clock to 6 p.m. on Wednesdays. And thank you, Lloyd, my great engineer. Have a good evening. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.